Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From Tula Tacos and Amigos in downtown Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Maida, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. What's the difference between an artist and an artisan? You might say one makes things for expression and the other for use, but in reality, the line is pretty blurry. It's a distinction without a difference for the people who are actually making things. Art and craftsmanship have always been in conversation. I'm not an art historian, but it strikes me that creating for expression was made possible by creating for necessity. You know, ancient Mesopotamians discovered glassmaking, Syrians blow it into household goods. Eventually, you get Dale Chihuly. But plenty of artists and artisans flow back and forth across whatever imaginary line human beings need to draw between categories. You know, I once visited our first guest, Francis Pavi, at his studio in Lafayette's Freetown neighborhood, and you could be forgiven for thinking it was a workshop. You know, he's best known as a painter, and Francis has shown his work internationally, but he's also a wonder with a CNC router, and he carves blocks to make his iconic paintings with motifs of Louisiana mythology, pop culture, or icons like Elvis and 20th century design. Now, Francis grew up in Lafayette and began his career in glassmaking, moving quickly into painting in the 1980s, and recently he and his wife, Kathy, a designer, uh, launched an imprint for creating fabrics. Each textile features hand-designed patterns with orders filled on demand, and their line now includes eight different designs meticulously crafted in a digital processing method Francis created to accommodate his style into fabric. Always pushing the edge with technology, Francis Pavi, welcome to Out to Lunch. Good morning, Christian and Erica. Uh, you know, since long before there was an Acadiana, this region has been blessed with a vibrant maker, maker culture. The Atakapa Ishak tribe that populated southwestern Louisiana and East Texas were known for their trading posts where travelers and craftsmen could trade their goods. And that's the tradition my guest Erica Fox and her partner Kimberly Abadie Moore tapped into when they launched Atakapa Collective, a cooperative that serves as a retailer and platform for local artisans, especially indigenous people and women of color. Erica and Kimberly saw an opportunity in the time uh, people have spent creating during the pandemic and put the collective together as an outlet. The shop opened in downtown Lafayette in 2021, just around the corner from, from Pavi Studio, actually, and now represents 34 artisans who produce local goods like tapestries, jewelry, metalworking, and more. Erica is also a songwriter and a Lafayette native. She spent 14 years in L.A. as a commercial artist. Uh, she was signed to No Limit Records before moving back to Lafayette. Erica Fox, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you for having me. Hello. Yep. Hey, good to see you. Um, yeah, Francis, I, I don't know that I've spent much of my life in the market for textiles. And, you know, y'all are marketing this stuff on a sort of an on-demand basis. So I'm curious, who in your mind is the target audience for Pavi Textiles? Is it somebody that would already be fam familiar with your work? Well, the end user would be, uh, would be the consumer. But, you know, we're targeting uh, designers, particularly architects, and, um, you know, we want to be more wholesalers and retailers. So showrooms, design showrooms, architects and designers. Is this a concept? I mean, I, I feel kind of silly asking this question that's been around where, where artists like yourself kind of move into this sort of design work where you're providing a product that 
then sort of another class of designer, let's say like an architect or an interior designer would then, you know, kind of look at to say, all right, well, you know, have you considered, you know, a, a Pavi textile wallpaper or something to that effect? Well, Kathy and I always, you know, talked about um, the vocabulary of imagery that I have in my paintings, that it could be easily interpreted into other things. So, I mean, we've been talking about this 25 years. And so finally, you know, uh, just three years ago or so, we decided to kind of move forward with this. And, uh, you know, artists have done this throughout history, you know, um, um, for us, it's just, um, I guess, a natural evolution of what I wanted to do with my work. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly being familiar with, with what you do. I mean, there is a certain design quality in the fact that you use or have used these sort of block prints and stuff that is, is distinct to your work. And so it lends itself that well. I mean, have you had to modulate the way that you work to make it make sense as a, as a fabric? Can that be constraining as an artist, I guess? No. Uh, um, uh, as I evolved as an artist, as a painter, you know, I started developing this vocabulary of imagery. So... Um, I don't think that I've, I've really changed the way I've, I've worked so much. In the essence, uh, uh, I mean, I've changed in the, in the digital sense because, you know, I had to figure out a way to make these things into digital form, you know, um, and they're huge, you know, huge, big files. So I've never worked that way before. That's, that's stretching the, the boundaries for me. Hmm. So, Erica, you know, you guys, true to the idea of a collective, y'all consider the artists and artisans that you work with to be kind of co-owners of the project. Now, I'm just sort of curious how that actually works in principle. I mean, uh, one word I keyed in on in, in sort of the research was the idea y'all are representing them, which is a, you know, kind of a, a concept you often hear in terms of like art galleries and things like that. How does that work? Well, we are an L3C co-op, so we are an actual living, breathing co-op that um, has a nonprofit arm. Um, and then the artisans actually run the shop. So we are actively owned and operated by the artisans in the shop. So does that mean like, I'm actually not that familiar with that just as a legal term of art, right? An L3C, L3C I mean... is, is like an LLC, but has a nonprofit arm. There's only about five states that have this type of uh, setup and Louisiana is one of them. So we're a low profitability corporation or company rather. Yeah. So uh, we, we're very bootstrapped. Unlike some galleries, we're a gallery style type um, store. They will have either a folk life organization that supports or sponsors them or will have backing from museums and grants and things of that nature. We are all bootstrapped. We pay a membership and our artisans basically pay to keep the lights on um, as well as sell their items in shops. So we're kind of almost if I had to make a comparison like a pop up, but okay. a pop up that doesn't stop. <laughs> yeah, it's, it sounds we're in like a you're brick a pop and mortar space. Yeah, it's like a pop-up that has to pay rent. I mean, uh, so how does... <laughs> well, a pop-up does pay rent. Every time you take part of a... That's true. ...festival or a farmer's market, you're paying to be there. So that's the same premise. Fair, fair enough. Our legal uh, setup is we are a cooperative space owned and operated so does, by the artisans. So does that mean that, like, you know, if I'm an artist and I want to get involved in this and I kind of come to you and say, like, hey, you know, I, I make X, Y, or Z and, and I feel like I'm a good fit... 
um, you know, how does that ownership structure actually get extended to them? It's like a, it's a concept that is really neat. And I guess I'm trying to get an understanding, like, does that mean you kind of have to be a selective about who comes in? Or does somebody say, like, look, here's a hundred bucks. I'm buying my spot. Now I'm a co-owner like you would a public stock corporation, you know, <laughs> sort of. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you are basically buying a space. You, it's like you're buying a little rental, a retail space of real estate in the store. Mm -hmm. Um, huh. So you pay a membership fee. We have meetings. We actually vote um, on setup situations, but we don't vote on basically who comes in. So unlike, say, other um, uh, stores that have a similar business model where you have to there's a jury that judges who comes in or mm -hmm. who uh, has work that is uh, wanting to be represented in the store, we we are different in that we will take new business we will take uh amateur artisans we will take people who are trying to test out a, a business idea so mm -hmm. you don't have to have this huge portfolio i mean obviously our end goal is to all be francis pavis in the end of <laughs> our careers <laughs> but you can have just been someone who was making quilts in your house and yeah. you know established a whole collection and now need a space to sell it so uh we we allow uh new startup and artisans to come in the shop basically you know you know francis you know it's interesting like i mean obviously there was a point in your life where you weren't well i guess you were always francis Pavi. that was always your name unless you changed it sometime along the way i'm not aware of that but i mean you know you would have sold some paintings i guess at some point and found like hey people like what i do and and i can make i, I guess i'm curious like i mean how would, would that process have actually worked for you maybe i mean you know did you at what point do does an artist go from somebody who says hey i, I can sell you a friend somebody i know you like my work to you know i can move into a space and do this commercially well i i always wanted to be a painter even as a child you know and uh i had i, I had many uh detours along the way of course so when i went to college um you go where the energy is so uh, when i was in college i, I studied sculpture because i had a very energetic teacher and uh after college uh i couldn't do ceramics anymore so i had a friend that did glass work and he got me a job in a glass shop i opened a glass shop over here and and then i started painting you know after a few false starts i painted i sat down one day and painted three paintings and I, I said to myself yeah this is kind of interesting and so what happened was uh, I sold one you know and I bought more paint and then I sold a few more and then people started calling me you know you should do this or do you want to show why don't you know all the opportunities just kind of uh, manifested so mm -hmm. at, but within two years I was making my living as a professional artist as a mm -hmm. painter you know I was doing glass work as a professional artist here. I mean, before I was a painter, but the the painting kind of took over the glass work. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, it seems pretty fast, right? To go, you know, from to, to be able to be able to kind of consider yourself professionally. I mean, Erica, the folks that you were working with. I mean, what? I guess I'd like to get a sense of like what status in their own careers are they in? Are these folks that are attempting to become professionals or the folks that kind of this is a side hustle or, or something they're just really passionate about? I mean, maybe it's all the above. I mean, what's it's happening? All, it's all of the above. Uh, yeah. One thing that makes us really unique and special is we're a cross-generational artisan store. So we've got youth entrepreneurs who are trying to figure out what their business may be in the future or just learning how to have a side hustle um mm -hmm. then we have some artists like 
you know, a, a Brian Benoit who's been in the game doing artwork for many, many years. So we kind of meet people where they are. And so that's what's really awesome about it. It's an active space where uh, we work together and collaborate together. So we are learning from one another so that youth entrepreneur has the opportunity to be exposed to Bryant and can sit and talk one-on-one -on -one and learn and gain uh, more experience. Um, and then we have mid-range, uh, we have second act seniors who have been quilting or making things their whole lives, but they didn't think they had a, an, uh, enough, I guess, resources to make this a full-time job so now that they're retired they can really pursue passions and they're in the store as well and then we have people who always sold on etsy or in their store online but always wanted a brick and mortar but didn't have a platform so it's a hodgepodge it's a motley crew of a bunch of very talented people so like i said we're trying to meet them where they are in their careers you know, it's interesting that you're using the word entrepreneur when you're talking about youth folks because i mean you know to some extent Right. I'm thinking in my head, you know, this kind of thing with like uh, we're talking about crafts and stuff like that, that there's an artisanal quality to it. But entrepreneurship, you're also kind of usually thinking about, hey, I'm going to make a product that I'm going to scale up, that I'm going to try and get lots of people to buy. So I mean, can you talk to me a little bit about who these youth entrepreneurs are, like what they're making, what they're selling in your shop? Yes, um, we have a gentleman named Israel and he's making beads. Uh, so they're beads that are sourced from various places, both uh, locally and out of the country. And he makes beads and he sells them usually at pop-ups. Um, and he is about 15 years old and his mother helps him to, you know, run the business at the pop-ups, but he's got an opportunity to showcase his beads in store. And, and they're very popular. People love his artwork. Um, there's another individual in the shop also named Israel, and she <laughs> is my daughter. And she sews. She's an artist. She uh, paints and draws, but she uh, loves to sew. Uh, which is kind of a, a, a lost art, especially amongst the younger generation. So she has taken a, a liking to, to making her own clothing and patterns. And so uh, some of her work is, uh, is showcased in the shop as well. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. I'm talking with Erica Fox of the Takapaw Collective and painter Francis Poppy. Francis, I'm curious. I mean, I'm really always fascinated by these silly questions that other people roll their eyes about, right? What's the difference between an artist and an artist? And I think we've we've entered another piece of vocabulary here is the idea of an entrepreneur. And so I guess I'm curious, like, Francis, in your life, would you have thought of yourself as an entrepreneur? Is that a word that feels familiar that you wear in a way that's comfortable to you? Yeah, it does feel very uh, familiar. And I've always considered myself a professional ever since I opened the studio. I mean, I was a, when I graduated from college, I started doing glass work, you know, and I was a worker for somebody else. But when I opened my studio here doing glass work, I, you know, did all the professional things that you need to do, print business cards, took a loan to buy machinery, you know, um, you know, got a certificate of occupancy, you know, paid the taxes, uh, you know, every month. And, you know, it's, um, I conduct myself, I remember thinking that, uh, you know, I just need to conduct myself as a professional and you know and in doing so you that means there's a bottom line so you have to be an entrepreneur you know mm -hmm. consider yourself a business person i can, i don't i don't see those terms as being uh, uh, uh i don't see i don't see those fight terms fighting each other business person entrepreneur same thing pretty much for me 
Eric, it sounds like this is resonating with you. They go you hand in hand. I mean, even as a musician, a singer and a musician, you are your own small business. You are an entrepreneur. So I think we all had that spirit of seeing the value that our creative works adds to the cultural economy of our state. So hmm. we see ourselves not just artisans making something, but seeing the bigger picture that it's providing economic opportunities for for our, our livelihood and our families. Well, let's talk a little bit more about your entrepreneurship. I mean, Erica, you, you were a songwriter and you make this transition. I mean, tell me about, I, I don't know, well, first, how did you get from sort of doing one to the other? But I'd also be curious just to know, you know, how, how what your career has been like as a songwriter, right? I mean, you, you went out to L.A. where the, you know, the hits are made. That's a loaded question, a good question. <laughs> um, but I have to say, I, I don't you. feel like they're... I transition from one to the other. I feel okay. like it's the, all the same creative spirit that I'm pulling from because I'm a creative at the end of the day. So whether I'm making jewelry or singing or writing songs, it's all sourced from the same place. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just, I guess, variations of that same creativity, just like Mr. Pavi can do everything from glass to painting. It's still sourced from that creative uh, soul, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, I moved from Lafayette. I was born and raised here in Lafayette, and I moved to go to college at Occidental College in Los Angeles. And it was there that, um, although my drive was to get that record deal and, and perform and make music, I knew that I also had a love for learning. So I made sure to continue my education and uh, received my degree in economics and worked a lot in finance as well. So I do have that cool. ba business background as well as the creative, you know, musical background. And so my whole life has been trying to weave both of them um, together and utilize mm -hmm. those resources and those skill sets. Um, my school also had a mission of multiculturalism and diversity. And of course, living in Los Angeles, you're exposed to so much culture and heritage. I, it was like cultural overload. And I went into a shock just realizing just the vastness of people and um, learning about different types of backgrounds and people's nationalities and where they came from. And I loved it. And mm -hmm. that also that spirit has always stayed with me. And I knew um, when I moved back home that I wanted to keep that same spirit alive because we have that same magic in Louisiana as well, that culture, that deep heritage, that is a beautiful thing. And for me going out over there and seeing a different version of it and just falling in love with it, I know that that's what people do every day when they walk into our store or when they go to Mr. Pavi's shop and see his work. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a beauty and a deep connection that you get. And mm. it's beautiful and it's very unique. I have to say it's very unique. So, so you hooked up with the folks at with No Limit Records, right? But that was based in New Orleans. So, so how did, how did? I guess I'm trying to get extensive. Like, what was your music career? Obviously, it's still going. I don't mean to imply that it was. I get it. I'm a, I'm a musician. I've been a touring musician for a long time. But like, you know, so I apologize if I made it seem like you left it behind. But I just try to get a sense of what that work has been like for you. No, no, I, I didn't. Yep. Uh, I didn't interpret it that way. Um, so I, that, that was actually my second record deal. I had three. I moved okay. to Los Angeles. I was 18 when I secured my first record deal with MCA Records. Okay. I was on the label for two years, and then we went through executive changes. So my album was 
shelved. Um, I, I, it was like grand opening, grand closing <laughs> real quick. But I learned that just because you get a record deal, that's not the end all be all, you know. I, yeah. uh, so it was short lived. I had to continue to hustle. I always hustled. And that's something that I gained from just my parents. They were always entrepreneurs and I had a family of entrepreneurs. So I always saw that hustle spirit. And um, so after losing the first record deal, if you will, um, I was still in school, still doing uh, back backing vocals for other artists, writing on other people's material. I was a performer at Universal Studios. I was working at the record company during the daytime. <laughs> And I had a band on the weekend, so I never sat on my laurels. And I was able to secure a second record deal, which was with No Limit, uh, while singing at the Laker game uh, at the Staples Center, which is no longer Staples Center. But um, so their uh, attorney saw me there and approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in meeting with uh, Master P. And so he, he set up the meeting and sang for him on the spot and pretty much the rest was history, got a record deal with him. And uh, I moved to Baton Rouge for about two years uh, after graduating from college and recorded there for some time. But then realized that I still wanted to pursue some other things in Los Angeles. So after two years, I actually left the record label and went back to California to do some other things like acting uh, and doing theater work, a lot of theater work. And that's where I got another record deal uh, on Universal and stayed there for some time. And that's where I wrote with a lot of other artists. Um, so I have about 30 commercial uh, projects, whether it be uh, albums or uh, compilation CDs or writing on other people's uh, albums as well as my own. Yeah, man, that's, uh, you know, when I, I often feel like we don't get to see that veil of people who work and succeed in the music industry and just like how much work that really goes into it and all the things you you have to do I mean, it's kind of what francis was talking about when he's saying like look i opened my shop i had to get my certificate of occupancy i had to figure out how to pay my taxes right like there's this level of administrative work that people just don't assume that musicians and artists have to go through but it's there right and i mean and francis i imagine even for somebody at, at a stage in your career right like you are you're still having to do that stuff right i mean it's still you know uh, operating a business is still a big part of what you have to wake up every morning and do right Oh yeah, well, and this new venture that we're involved in, Pavi Art and Design, it's uh, it's a collaboration. So we have meetings weekly and talk about the mechanics of what we have to do to get this thing rolling. And we've been we've been doing this three years already, so it's been quite a uh, uh, it's a learning process for me because there's a lot of things that I didn't know about uh, business and actually working with people because you know I did all this. You know, my, my solo career is just a, a so it's a solo career. You know, I deal with my gallery, which is a separate thing, or my galleries are, are basically pop-ups for exhibitions, you know, that's you know, that's like a one-time thing. But but running a business is a different thing and working with partners is a different thing. Does it make a difference that that partner in this case is your wife? I mean, I, I feel like <laughs> I can't avoid that question. Well, it's, it's great. You know, it's like, um, you know, I... Uh, you know, we isolated for well, it's been 18 months right now. But if we didn't love her, you know, I would, I would, uh, I, I wouldn't be there. You know, it's like it's, it's really, it's been good. You know, we, we agree on a lot of things and really disagree. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, you know, so I, I guess I'm curious. You mentioned earlier uh, 
Francis, that, that you really had to adapt to sort of the digitization of all this, these large-scale textiles. And I mean, I think that's actually pretty interesting because I don't know that that would be obvious to people that that would take an extra step, right? People kind of might take a picture and say, like, wait, you can't just blow it up on a computer and do it 40 more times. And that sounds to me like it's pretty straightforward. But it sounds like your process is pretty um, detailed for, for, for what may end up being something that's copied many, many, many times, right? Yeah, it is. Um... Uh, since I, I'm painting the, the patterns full scale, that's like 54 inches by 54 inches. And photography these days, com you know, your average commercial photography that or, or camera that you buy, even the best ones, you know, can't photograph that kind of uh, detail that I need to put into these textiles. So uh, I've learned to adapt to try and get the, um, you know, stitch photographs together that's that's a a digitally stitch them together and the lighting is a big deal you know you have to have uh even lighting across the whole plane so if and that's very very difficult even professional photographers i don't know of any professional photographers that i mean you have to make a filter in photoshop to to even out the light and there's all a bunch of little other tricks that i've come up with because you know invention uh what do they say uh, necessity is the mother of invention you know yep. so so erica i mean uh, at this stage like I, I know obviously with the the the, the thought behind attack upon and what you guys are trying to accomplish just even socially in terms of social impact i mean um but even creating it as a low profit type entity i mean is this something that you're able to do full-time for your own work or are you still working on other projects i mean how does that actually end up being a, a full-time or a full-time kind of job for you it is full-time because the vision that we have for the store is full-time so my focus and passion right now has been all in on the store so i haven't been taking any gigs or performing elsewhere um because I really want to see this store grow. Um, as I mentioned with the youth entrepreneurs, we have a great opportunity to help guide and lead future business and future artisans. So I take that very seriously. So uh, I, I, I make sure that we are focused on this being successful and setting it up for success. The beauty of it too is because we're a, a co-op of various artisans, everyone comes with like special skill sets that contribute to the success of each other. So, you know, these artisans are interacting with one another. The space is, is sacred. It's, it's all about community and building that community. And so there's a, a unity that's in the store. We even have a mural on the wall that says we are the dreams of many because there, there's a bunch of people's passions all represented in here. And we all wanna see each other succeed. So, although this is my full-time venture, uh, I feel well supported by all of the collective members that are here in shop. Yeah. I, well, obviously, passion's super important with anything. I mean, you know, we, we're going to think about artistry and artisanship as a form of entrepreneurship. It's something you really have to love to do it, right? The thick sort of thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. And clearly, for, for both of you, Francis and, and Erica, what you do are things you're very passionate about, and it's the reason why you're successful at it. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Uh, my guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana have been uh, painter Francis Pavia and Erica Fox of 
Attack of Pot Collective. We edited this conversation to fit into our time slot here on KRBS. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Francis and Erica's adventures in the world of art and design by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast on your podcast app and on our website. It's Acadiana.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from the show on itsacadiana.com and on our social media. Those photos were taken by Astor Morgan, and you can find more of his work at astormorgan.com. This week, pandemic conditions compelled us to record Out to Lunch Acadiana by Zoom. Next week, we hope to be back at a regular lunch spot, uh, Tula Tacos on Jefferson Street in downtown Lafayette. Tula is open for lunch and dinner and stays open late every day except Monday. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRBS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producers are Molly Richard and Jan Risher. Our researcher is Leah Erdialis. I'm Christian Mader. I'm editor of the current Lafayette's nonprofit info community. And for local news, commentary, and more, head over to the thecurrentla.com and sign up for our newsletter. I'll see you here again next time for more business and conversation on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.